Well, as you can see, brothers and sisters, we are in chapter 10 of the book of Leviticus. And yes, I do know how to count. I know that eight and nine come after seven. I understand that, right? Some people talk to me about this. I chose to skip over, or maybe pass over, sounds better, chapters eight and nine, because in many ways, we've kind of largely covered them already. For example, chapter 8 deals with the consecration ceremony of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, but it's really just the fulfillment of the instructions already given in Exodus chapter 29. In fact, if you remember, when we were studying the tabernacle, you'll remember that whole portions of Exodus were kind of mirroring one another, and they were basically instructions and commands, and then the fulfillment of those commands, right? And even there, we kind of passed over the fulfillment, other than really just to note the, the importance of fulfilling God's commands accordingly to how he commanded, right? Well, Leviticus chapter 8 is very much the mirroring fulfillment of Exodus 29, which we've already looked at, and so I decided to pass over that. Furthermore, I chose to pass over chapter 9 as well, because chapter 9 more or less simply shows Aaron as high priest, performing all the functions of high priest, giving all the sacrifices of the high priest, and all the significance of those things, the high priest and the sacrifices, we have already explored in great detail, both in Exodus and Leviticus, so I chose to pass over them. We will interact, however, a little bit with chapter 9, because chapter 9, a little bit of chapter 8, serves as a very kind of striking contrast to what comes in chapter 10. And there are, in fact, explicit parallels between the two chapters. But aside from that, we're only going to interact with chapter 9 insofar as it helps us to understand chapter 10. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, Pastor, if you passed over chapter 8 and chapter 9, why not just pass over chapter 10? After all, you've already talked about Nadab and Abihu a few times so far, so why, why stick around this? Why not just pass over it? Well, in many ways, your point is well taken. I have touched on Nadab and Abihu before, and several times, in fact. For example, we considered them as they, they put on full display all the insufficiencies of the Levitical priesthood, uh, the insufficiencies of that priesthood to be proper mediators um, between God and men. They put that on full display, and we've considered that. We also considered uh, how, from the perspective of the regulative principle, they show, <laughs> they put on in full display the regulative principle that what is not commanded may not be done in God's worship. We've talked about that. In many ways, that's kind of an explicit contrast in chapter 10 and the chapters before. The chapters before have a great emphasis on Moses or Aaron obeying commands. Verse 4 of chapter 8, and Moses did as the Lord commanded, right? Chapter 10 begins, they offered, un they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded, right? So that's part of this as well. So we have looked at Nadab and Abihu. Nevertheless, I wanted to go through it one more time, really for two reasons. First, there are several things that take place in chapter 10 the significance of which we have not yet considered. For example, there are some new rules and instructions for priests that we've not seen before. 
Some very interesting things are said about the sin offering and how atonement is made with the sin offering, things which I had never read, and when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, that's very interesting. We want to look at that. And then lastly, later in the chapter, uh, there's kind of a little bit of a mysterious conflict between Moses and Aaron. Um, Moses gets mad at Aaron, and at least for me, it was not readily apparent what that whole exchange was about. There's a lot of things in this chapter that, that we haven't unfolded yet that we want to do. Secondly, and most importantly, I want us to consider Nadab and Abihu because there are interesting parallels between what happens to them and occurrences in the New Testament. Their sin is primarily a violation against the holiness of God, very much along the lines of the kinds of sins that we saw necessitated the guilt offering, right? Acts of faithlessness against God's holiness, to treat God as common and not as holy, except in their case, it was such a severe offense, no guilt offering could be given. They were just put to death. In the New Testament, although the ceremonial law has been abrogated, the distinction between clean and unclean and holy and common has been done away with, and praise God, we have come to Mount Zion, and we no longer tremble at the base of Mount Sinai. Nevertheless, there are still holy things in the new covenant, brothers and sisters. We may even say in a certain sense there is still somewhat of a distinction between holy and common. I want to be very careful how I explain that. Christ has set us free from the law, as our confession says, Christian liberty is being free from the rigor and curse of the law. And yet, as you scan the New Testament, God and his ordinances, those things which he institutes in his church and his worship, those things are not to be treated as common. And when they are treated as common, bad things happen. Things very similar to Nadab and Abihu. Now, the holiness of things in the New Covenant not exactly the same. Uh, if, if bread from the Lord's Supper were to fall on the table, we would not say, well, the table has become holy now as, as holiness kind of spread. But there are still holy things. In fact, the substance of all the holy and common distinctions of the Old Testament, we live in the substance of those things now. God and his holy ordinances are not to be treated as common. Furthermore, as I said, even in the New Testament, when people treat God's holiness or his holy ordinances as common, God brings judgment. Now, it's not the judgment in the sense of the curse of the law. That was born entirely by Christ for us on the cross. But it is a judgment of fatherly discipline. Perhaps the best way to say it is this. God is no less zealous for his holiness under the new covenant than he was under the old. And Mount Sinai, uh, Mount, Sinai. <laughs> Mount Zion is just as holy as Mount Sinai, if not more so, because it contains the realities, the substance, whereas the law contained merely shadows. And as we'll see, there are striking parallels between people under the new covenant and Nadab and Abihu. We want to consider these things, brothers and sisters, lest we ourselves treat God and his holy ordinances as common and a similar fate befall us. Well, what I'd like us to do then is first to walk through the passage 
and unpack all the things that we haven't seen there. As I said, there's a lot of interesting things. We've not really considered them in great detail before. And then secondly, we will consider the New Testament parallels to Nadab and Abihu and what they teach us about God's zeal for his holiness even today. Okay? Let's begin in the passage. Take your Bibles and turn to verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Nadab and Abihu were the two eldest sons of Aaron. As far as we know, Aaron had a total of four sons. The younger will be introduced to shortly, Eleazar and Ithamar, but Nadab and Abihu were the oldest. As the oldest, they often went along with their father and assisted him in various kinds of ways. In fact, we've already read in Exodus 24, when God calls Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders to come up halfway Mount Sinai to worship him, Nadab and Abihu go with their father. We're told in verse 1 that each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now, we've considered this incident several times, but I don't believe we've ever explored in what way exactly this fire, this incense, was unauthorized. How was it not commanded by the Lord? Well, we're not exactly told how in the text. It may be perhaps that they used coals from a common fire instead of coals from the bronze altar to burn incense. We'll see later in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12, the coals for the censer were to be taken for the, from the coals from the fire on the bronze altar because, remember, that's where the heavenly fire fell, right? So you're taking that same fire and burning incense. Perhaps they took coals from any other fire. Perhaps the unauthorized fire had something to do with the golden altar of incense. In fact, Exodus 30, verse 9 uses a very similar phrase in reference to the golden altar. It warns not against using unauthorized fire, but unauthorized incense. It's the same word unauthorized, and it's kind of the only other time in the context that it's used. Perhaps they did something with the altar of incense. We're not really told what, but maybe something God never commanded. Last of all, perhaps most simply, they burned incense when there was no command to do so. Priests were called to burn incense uh, with the censers, and yet not freely whenever they wanted. It was not something they could just kind of take to themselves and really have initiative. Uh, And perhaps that's exactly what they did. They thought that, well, I'm a priest. I can just do whatever I want. Um, Whatever the reason, the emphasis is that it was not commanded by God. Verse 2 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified. Before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. 
Here we see a shocking contrast with what had just taken place seconds earlier. The end of chapter 9, Aaron offers up his very first sacrifices. Fire comes down from heaven or or from, from before the Lord in his sanctuary, consumes them, signifying that God approves of them. They are accepted by the Lord. It's also big in the sense that, you know, with the golden calf incident, everything was kind of on the rocks. God, God has now accepted not only them back, but now accepted their worship. God can truly dwell among his sinful people. Everything is great, right? Now, whereas God showed his fire consuming the sacrifices as a sign of his approval and acceptance of their worship, that same fire comes out and consumes Nadab and Abihu, signifying his disapproval and rejection of their worship. John Gill makes an interesting point here that I I guess I hadn't entirely thought of, um, but it makes sense. He says that when the fire consumed Nadab and Abihu, we shouldn't understand that as meaning that the fire truly consumed all of them in the same sense it consumed the sacrifices. Rather, he means we should understand it in the sense of it consumed their life. This fire killed them. He points to the fact that they are still said to be carried out in their coats in verse 5, meaning their coats had not entirely been burned off, and at least enough that they could be carried out in them. Gill suggests that perhaps by fire is meant something along the lines of lightning, actually. Um, We can't know for certain, and we don't want to be too dogmatic, but that would make sense, and it would make sense why they could still be carried out in their coats. The most important thing to note in verses 2 through 5 Really, the centerpiece of the whole chapter is what Moses says to Aaron in verse 3. This, in many ways, encapsulates entirely the, the whole burden of the book of Leviticus. This is the great, the great dilemma between sinful men and a holy God. God is to be sanctified by those who draw near to him meaning God is to be sanctified in their heart. They are to regard him as holy in all of their being if they are to draw near. And it is death to any who would try to draw near to him while treating him as common. Note also to whom Moses says these words. He is not merely offering commentary to all of Israel, right? He's not merely giving the... the, uh, the interpretation of what has just happened. Rather, he is speaking directly to his brother, Aaron, probably for two reasons. First, Aaron's the high priest. Second, his sons were just incinerated. In many ways, all eyes are on Aaron. How is he going to respond to this? Will he lash out in anger at God and bring disastrous consequences on the rest of the congregation? We'll see later, if the sons of Aaron sin at other times, he says, you will bring wrath upon the congregation. So everyone is looking to Aaron. How is he now going to respond to this? Told at the end of verse 3, and Aaron held his peace. Literally, and Aaron was silent. In the context, though, I I think holding his peace uh, is fitting. It is a silence, as Calvin says, whereby Aaron confessed that his sons were slain by the just judgment of God. 
Furthermore, although Moses' words are very blunt to his brother because of the high stakes of the situation, it doesn't mean they were necessarily without pity for his beloved brother who was now in a great state of shock and grief. In fact, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs paraphrases Moses' words to his grieving brother, saying, Though I confess the hand of God is heavy upon you this day, yet it is fitting for you to submit to God. Tis fit that God should be glorified whatever becomes of you. I think that's a reasonable understanding of how Moses expresses those words. Lastly, in these verses, Aaron's cousins, Mishael and Elzaphan, carry out the bodies of his sons. Aaron and his two remaining sons do not. They are holy. They have, they have been consecrated with the oil. They cannot become unclean and touch a dead body. Verse 6. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between holy and the common, between clean and the un- or unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Here, Moses and the Lord address Aaron and his two remaining sons, who are still priests, and basically warns them that they are not to do any of those things that mourning people might normally do in the ancient world. This is why Moses says, But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. It's as if he's saying, They will be mourned, but not by you. He says they are not to let their hair hang loose or tear their clothes, both things that ancient peoples typically did when in mourning. To let your hair hang loose means to make it disheveled. Basically, when you mourned in the ancient world, how you felt on the outside, you made that how you looked, okay? Your hair was a mess. You'd probably put dust or or ashes upon it. Your clothes were either torn or they were sackcloth and ashes. None of those things can be done now by these priests who have been anointed with holy oil and who are wearing the holy garments. Neither are they to go outside of the courtyard, he says, presumably to the place of burial to mourn their brothers. Nor are they to drink wine or strong drink, which perhaps they might also do in their great grief. Rather, they they are to be examples to the rest of the congregation, which is why I think God says to Aaron in verses 10 through 11, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. I understand your brothers were just killed or your sons were just killed, but you are priests. You are to be examples to the whole congregation. That's what he's saying. Verse 12. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, 
because it is your due and your son's due and the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Here, Moses is essentially getting them back on the horse, so to speak. They can't stop. Um, everyone is probably in stunned silence, but the worship of God has to go on. It's, it's been stopped midway, but things have to continue. Um, there are sacrifices that they have to eat of and things like that, and that's what he's doing here. Verse 16, now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. These verses have some very interesting things in them that I confess I was, I was like, oh, wow, I wish I had read that uh, before I dealt with the sin offerings. The reason why Moses is mad at them that they didn't eat the goat of the sin offering is not just because it was commanded, they were commanded to do so, but also because the eating of the sin offering seems to have been part of the ways that the priests made atonement for the people. What else can be taken from the words, quote, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them? John Gill says, by eating the sin offering, they made the sins of the people for whom the offering was, in some sense, their own. And they bore them and made atonement for them, in which they were types of Christ, who was made sin for his people, took their sins upon him, and by imputation they were made his own, and he bore them in his own body on the tree and made full satisfaction and atonement for them. So the eating of the sin offering was part, actually, of making atonement, and yet they did not eat it, but rather burned it up and so Moses is understandably upset. You ever seen your kids do something, and get disciplined, and five seconds later they do it again, and you're like, judgment is about to come and fall upon this place swiftly, right? Moses is like, guys, two priests have already died. I'd really like to have priests by the time we're done today, okay? Do not disobey anymore. So he's, he's understandably very upset. Aaron says in verse 19, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. What exactly is Aaron saying? Clearly, he does not think that the Lord would have approved of his eating of the sacrifice, but why? I think the clue is probably in the phrase, 
And yet such things as these have happened to me. What things? Well, the death of his oldest two sons. A just death by the Lord, but his sons, his beloved sons, nevertheless. Because his sons have died, he does not believe the Lord would have approved if he ate of the sacrifice. But again, why? I think the answer is because in his heart, and in his son's hearts, they were mourning. And it seems from a few other passages that sacrifices were not to be eaten while one was in a state of mourning. For example, in Deuteronomy 26, there are instructions for Israelites when they bring in the tithe to the Lord. Part of these instructions are a confession that they are to make every year. And part of what it says in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 26 is, I have not eaten of the tithe while I was in mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered it to any of it to the dead. There, in Deuteronomy 26, 14, eating of the tithe in a state of mourning is mentioned next to touching the tithe in a state of uncleanness. We saw last week that no one was to eat of sacrifices while they were themselves in a state of uncleanness. And so perhaps, in a sense, eating in mourning was kind of like eating while you were unclean. It was almost a, a kind of inward uncleanness, in a sense, if you will. The sacrifice was to be eaten joyfully. Yet in the state of mourning, it's really at odds with God's purposes. Technically, technically, Aaron did disobey the commandment of Moses to eat it. And yet it was not at all like the disobedience of Nadab and Abihu. They disobeyed out of a lack of reverence for God's holiness, out of great carelessness. Aaron acted with great carefulness because of God's holiness, which is why it says in verse 20, and when Moses heard that, he approved. Moses realized, that, no, you're right, actually, that makes sense. You, you are acting like a priest. You are thinking in terms of the law. Okay, very good. Well, that was our first task, brothers and sisters, to walk through the passage now we want to move on to the greater task of applying this passage to ourselves. How ought the Christian, living after the cross of Christ, to respond to the story of Nadab and Abihu? Do we say, well, thank the Lord, we live under the new covenant, man. Thank the Lord, ceremonial law has gone away with, right? Things like this no, no longer happen. Yes and no. We do thank the Lord. We no longer live in slavish fear under the rigor and curse of the law. Rather, we live in gospel confidence and assurance, the assurance of sons and daughters, no longer of slaves. And yet neither can we entirely consign Nadab and Abihu to the Old Testament. The God who struck them dead is the God we sang songs to this morning. He does not change. His zeal for his holiness has by no means diminished under the new covenant, even though Christ has fully secured our redemption and salvation. It's not as though God learned to chill out and not take himself so seriously anymore, brothers and sisters. He is just, if not more so, zealous for his holiness now among his true saints, the Israel of God. When we look at all of the scriptures, we see that the deaths of Nadab and Abihu 
or the death of Uzzah when he touched to stable the ark, or the striking of King Uzziah with leprosy, those kinds of things are not just Old Testament occurrences. They happen in the New Testament quite a few times, actually. Furthermore, when they happen in the New Testament, it seems to almost always occur when someone treats God or one of his holy ordinances as common instead of as holy. Sometimes the, the similarities between Nadab and Abihu and things that happen in the New Testament are striking. For example, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 20. <clears throat> we looked at this in Sunday school. Paul says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. However, or whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink, drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. First thing to note in this passage is that we're dealing with a holy ordinance of God's worship, namely the Lord's Supper. We use that term all the time, the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Day. It's actually a very unique way of saying that in Greek. It, it really means like the Lord's special day. It's his special property. So also this supper is his special property. It's a holy ordinance that God has instituted. Paul says to them, however, they do not actually partake of the Lord's Supper. They may think they are, they may say to one another, they are, they are eating bread and drinking wine, but he says it's not the supper of which you're partaking of. Why? I would say because they're not treating it as a holy ordinance, but really as a common meal. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, this is not Whataburger, okay? This is not 
your breakfast. This is not your lunch or your dinner. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not a common meal. It proclaims the death of the Lord. When you have your breakfast, you are not proclaiming the death of the Lord. When you're eating the supper, you are. The purpose of the supper, its God-given significance, was lost among them. They were just eating bread without looking by faith to the one that the bread pointed to. According to Paul, this is to eat in an unworthy manner. It's interesting that Aaron in chapter 10 of Leviticus realized the importance of not eating in an unworthy manner in worship, and yet the Corinthians just go right ahead. What does Paul say? Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's the same truth of Leviticus 10.3. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. When you draw near to the Lord, brothers, he will be sanctified by you. It's very interesting. Many of the Puritans often appeal to Leviticus 10.3 to speak of how we are to approach God in his worship and ordinances. For example, Samuel Bolton wrote an excellent work. It's largely an application of Leviticus 10.3. The book has a great long title, the guard of the tree of life, or a sacramental discourse showing a Christian's privilege in approaching to God in ordinances, his duty in his sacramental approaches, and danger if he do not sanctify God in them. From Leviticus 10.3, he lays down the following three truths. They who deal with any ordinance of God draw near to God. We are drawing near to God. You are hearing an ordinance, namely the preaching of his word. When we come to the table, we are drawing near to God. Two, they who draw near to God in any ordinance must sanctify God in it. Three, if we do not sanctify God in an ordinance, he will be sanctified upon us. The Corinthians did not sanctify God in his ordinance, brothers and sisters, but God was sanctified upon them. Brothers and sisters, sanctify the Holy Lord in his holy ordinances. In his worship, it is not an ordinary common gathering. In his church, it is not an ordinary organization. In prayer, you are not just talking to anyone, but to God. On his day, it is not any of the other six days. It is the Lord's day. He has especially called that his own. Do not treat them as common. They are holy. If you would draw near to God, sanctify God in his ordinances. Next, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Here we see that we need not only to approach God's holy ordinances in a worthy manner, but that in our lives in general, we are to walk worthily of God and not treat him as common. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds 
and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. But Peter said to her, tell me. Whether you sold the land for so much, and she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to, it, said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Many have noted the similarities between Nadab and Abihu, and Ananias and Sapphira in particular. In both occasions, for example, they are preceded by joyful events, which serve as strong contrast to the shocking deaths and judgment that God brings upon them. With Nadab and Abihu, as we saw, it's, it's preceded by God's uh, the joyful acceptance of Israel's worship. Ananias and Sapphira is preceded by God just working powerfully in, in his church through his spirit. It says at the end of chapter 4 of Acts, verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Boom. Next chapter. Furthermore, there's a very striking similarity that when they are struck down, they are both noted as being taken out and buried. With Nadab and Abihu, they are taken out of the camp. With Ananias and Sapphira, they are taken out of the city. Furthermore, we could also note, it's interesting that with Nadab and Abihu, the fire of God that had just fallen from heaven in the previous chapter and yet in the book of Acts, just a few chapters earlier on the day of Pentecost, the fire of God's Spirit also fell upon the church. Furthermore, we could even say that just as the fire which fell from heaven on the altar came out and burned Nadab and Abihu, so also it was the Spirit which fell from heaven on Pentecost that put Ananias and Sapphira to death. As Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Lastly, whereas Nadab and Abihu sinned against God, God's holiness, so also the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is very much, as we've seen with other sins against God's holiness in the Old Testament, very much uh, malice aforethought, as we've kind of seen. There's premeditation that takes place in it. In fact, it's interesting. If you remember, we saw with the guilt offering that it was a faithlessness against God's holiness, partly for times when people swore falsely in matters of money, right? We read in Leviticus 6, 2 through 4, that the guilt offering, it says, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, 
or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. It's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. They swore falsely about money to an apostle of the Lord. It's also interesting that with the sins for the guilt offering, God is clear that even when from an earthly perspective those sins are primarily against other Israelites, they're against other humans, God is clear, no, 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 that was an act of covenant faithlessness against me, right? God is the true party of that sin. What does Peter say in Acts 5? You have not lied to man but to God. Clear act of faithlessness against God's holiness. So God puts him to death. And it ends by saying, and great fear came upon the whole church. Brothers and sisters, that is how we ought to respond to Nadab and Abihu. The Nadabs and Abihus of Scripture. The Uzzahs of Scripture. The Ananiases and Sapphiras of Scripture. Great fear ought to come upon this body of Christ. Not a slavish fear. It comes from being under the law. As John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's not the kind of fear we want. That's not the kind of fear that came upon the church. Rather, we want the fear of the Lord as it's called, a holy awe of the staggeringly thrice holy God to sanctify him in our hearts. And I pray that that fear would fall upon every heart here today, brothers and sisters. That carelessness would be replaced by carefulness. That we would not treat what God has laid aside as holy as common. Remember, while we do not fear eternal punishment, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ yet. As a father, God does still discipline his children to correct them, even under the new covenant, and even today. Samuel Bolton warns in his book, as the ordinances of God are precious things when God is sanctified in them, so they are costly things when profaned. It is costly to treat something holy as common, brothers and sisters. He explains, it may bring you bodily hurt. He says, you see this in the Corinthians. It was some epidemical disease whereby God swept away many in all quarters of the church. He says, God doth not break out invisible judgments upon the carcasses of men as formerly, meaning we don't see fire or lightning come out from from the table of the sacraments when we come unworthily, right? We don't see that anymore. Doesn't mean he doesn't bring God bodily hurt. Doesn't mean he doesn't bring other kinds of what our confession calls temporal judgments. There's a great need Be very wise and not interpret every kind of suffering that God is bringing upon you as God's fatherly discipline for your sin, right? But it's also true that God does that to get the attention of the saints. 
Furthermore, Bolton continues, the profaning of God's holiness may not just bring bodily or temporal hurts, but spiritual hurt. It may, quote, cause God to give you up to the blindness of mind and hardness of heart. Our confession says, Christians by their sins may, quote, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened, and their consciences wounded. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Fear your loving, holy Father, brothers and sisters. Do not treat him as common. Now, with all this talk of judgment and people dropping dead, I don't want to leave us just quite here yet, especially as we're about to partake of an ordinance of God's supper, right? (laughs) Be encouraged, trembling conscience, to look to Christ. He has atoned for all your sins. Be encouraged to look at your merciful Father through Christ who has accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. It's interesting that Samuel Bolton in his book very pastorally goes on to explain what it means to partake of an ordinance worthily. He explains it doesn't mean to partake of them sinlessly. No one could partake them, right? Rather, he says, and this is true of all of life, oh, whenever you go to the ordinance, be sure to take Christ with you. He says we take Christ with us to the ordinances in three ways. First, by way of admission. Admission. God is a consuming fire, he says, and we are but dried stubble. There is no approaching of him but in Christ. It is Christ who made that which was a bar of justice, a bench of mercy. In him we have admission. You approach the ordinances of God, but go not in the strength of your preparations, but in the strength of Christ. Say, Lord, I come alone in the merits of Christ to partake of the merits of the Lord Jesus. I have endeavored to prepare and fit myself through thy grace, but I look not for admission through my preparations, but through the blood and mediation of Christ. Next, he says, we take Christ with us by way of assistance. You go upon the ordinances, but you have no strength to do them without Christ, who is sufficient for these things. You might as well be set to move mountains as to undertake ordinances without the strength of Christ. It is Christ that must work all our works in us and for us, and blessed be the God who hath given to us what he requireth of us in Christ. Lastly, He says, we take Christ with us to the ordinances by way of acceptance. Our works, he says, they are not only impotent, but impure too, as they come from us. But here is a great comfort. You look at your performances and cannot see how God could ever accept them. So much deadness, so little life, so much coldness, But God looks upon them not as yours, but as Christ's, in whom not only our persons, but our performances are accepted. Christ gives us his spirit, and Christ is willing to own what we present by his spirit, 
And the Father is willing to own whatever is presented to him by his Son. Bolton closes the whole section. Well then, you have to deal with the ordinances of God. By these you draw near to God. Would you be admitted into the presence of God? Would you have God to hold out a golden scepter to you? Would you have grace and assistance to perform the work? Would you have acceptance when the work is done? Oh, get Christ to go along with you. On the one hand, we examine the judgment of God upon Nadab and Abihu, and it makes us say, who is sufficient for these things? On the other hand, if we look to Christ, we shall find all the sufficiency that God requires in him. Look to Christ. You children, if you would like to draw near to God and have a relationship with him and be forgiven, you cannot approach him but by Christ. And yet Christ is very willing. He has made a way open for all sinners to come to the Father through him. If you try to go on your own, it will be your death. If you go to Christ today, it will be your life. And the door is open wide for you to go even today, even this very moment by faith. Christ is sufficient. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we read earlier in the assurance of pardon, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Yet with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Oh God, would you give us a holy fear and zeal for you? Would you give us a spirit-empowered carefulness rather than fleshly carelessness? We thank you for Christ, who is all the sufficiency that we need from what you require of us. In Christ's name.